Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're launching into the new year with uh, all the excitement and um, all the resolutions and everything like that. And so the challenge now is how to take all the energy and the, the, the excitement and the, the, the passion, the determination, the seriousness um, of uh, our, our frame of mind during the holidays which is really, you know, kind of on the life and death level, and be able to sustain that into the year and, and make, um, make it real. And so I just want to talk about those things, like making that transition to the start of the year. Um, let me just start with sort of like, a, uh, a, sort of like a, a, an example of what we don't want to do. So, so here's... Uh, Here's something from the real world uh, that, that I know I've experienced uh, more than once, unfortunately, and uh, probably you've experienced it too, which is, have you ever been to a, uh, like a large, uh, like a sporting event or a big concert or something like this, and then it ends and it was like, you know, wow, that was great, that was really good, and then you're, you know, you're sort of pumped, and then you spend the next uh, 45 minutes looking for your car, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like... Very anticlimactic. It's like sort of like you're just wandering around. You don't know what to do. And it's like everyone else is sort of like leaving and they're all launched into the next part of their evening and you are not. Um, and so th- this, this period of time right now is kind of like we're, we're leaving the concert, we're leaving the big event, and it's sort of like, you know, did you remember where you parked your car or not? Can you, can you get into that set of resolves, resolutions, that, that game plan and take off? Or is this next period of time going to just be like wandering for months and essentially, you know, there's, there's, no, there's just this sort of paralysis um, which, is, which is taking place. And so we want to avoid that. We want to avoid that. We just want to kind of at this point just sort of like jump into our cars and go, go into the new year which is a new world. I mean, this is like, you know, one of the, one of the nicest things anyone ever said to me, I think, um, was, I was, uh, I was at a Carvel and, uh, and there was a person who, you know, is, let's put it nicely, highly eccentric. And, and I didn't, um, you know, whatever it is, and, 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 and uh, you know, she, she saw me and, and I, it, it was, it happened to have been my birthday and she, I told her and she said, she looked at me with just the kindest eyes in the entire world. And she said with all of her heart, you have no idea how many beautiful things God is waiting to give you this year. You know, and I just, she just said it from the bottom of her heart, and I felt it so strongly. And so all of us right now are at, it is a birthday for all of us, because all of us are at the beginning of a brand new year for all of us. And there are things absolutely stored up for all of us. Whatever level we're on, whatever, whatever it is, there are things stored up for all of us. <clears throat> now I want to go into a little more detail with that. I, I, I was thinking about how this works, sort of like the heavenly mechanics of it, if you will. 
And um, I didn't see this in any book, but it just kind of, there's, it just makes sense to me, so I'm going to share it with you. I don't think I'm saying anything new or radical here, but maybe I can put it in a, um, in a language that's, that's understandable. And what I want to talk about is um, divine decrees, because um, what we talk about in, in the prayers, <clears throat> especially in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, is that through tshuva and tzedakah, through returning to to God through returning to, you know, who, who we're made to be, who, who we can be, by giving charity and, by, and, and through prayer, just, uh, just connection. Um, we're able to, it says, rip up all of the negative decrees, right? So, so I was just trying to think of what that, what, what is that actual process? What, what, what does that mean? And, and, just so you understand what my question is, um, oftentimes the, the Chachamim, the sages, will express very um, metaphysical things in very here and now examples. Like for instance, when we talk, even Kabbalistically and things like this, when we talk about God's throne of glory, there is no chair floating in outer space, right? This is just, when we talk about like, in the beginning, uh, when God created the world, he made a space within himself, and then he you know, poured his light into these vessels which couldn't contain the light and shattered. There are no vessels floating up in outer space. This, this is just, this is just um, language that, that our, our, our greatest people have given us so that we can begin to comprehend these most esoteric concepts, Right? So returning back to this idea of decrees, I don't think, this is just me talking, I don't think there's a sheet of paper up there that's being ripped up. I, I just don't think that there is. So then, since it's true, since certainly we know there are decrees, and they are ripped up, and that's the language they gave us, so then what does it actually mean in terms of the actual mechanics of what's going on uh, in, in the heavenly realms? Okay. So that, that's what I'd like to address, and I'll give you my own understanding of it, and you know you can do with it what you like. So, so you see, we'll we'll take a couple of steps backwards for a moment and, and, and build to an answer. So, as we've been talking about these last few weeks, there's a rhythm to this um, to this last block of time starts with Elul. Elul, we're getting ready. Then it says Rosh Hashanah, it's written in a book. Right? Whatever our year is going to be. It's written in a book. It says there's several books. Okay. Interestingly, the, the, the deeper sources say that we actually hold the pen, that we're the ones who are writing ourselves in these books, and you'll see how that's actually very deep. We're going to explain what that means in a moment. We'll get to it. You'll see how deep that actually is. Um, there are many, many different books. There's, you know, health and merits and livelihood and life and all, all these different books. But again, I don't, I don't think that they're actually books. But nonetheless, they are real concepts. Um, that's Rosh Hashanah. On Yom Kippur, it says that the book is sealed, that the decrees are sealed, like with a stamp. Then it says on Hoshana Rabbah, that Hoshana Rabbah, it's um, 
the verdict, the judgment, whatever it is, is delivered. Okay? So now this is also a question, because if it's sealed, then what does it mean that it's delivered? Like, why do you need that extra, why do you need that extra step? If the king seals a decree, that's, that's the end, right? What, why, why this, the concept of it being delivered? Okay. So we're going to discuss that as well. Um, and that's, uh, like I say, that's, that's Hoshana Rabbah. And me personally, I had the most, uh, you know, intense Hoshana Rabbah of my life this year. So I feel extra connected to, to these ideas right now. And, um, you know, those of us who were there in the, in the sukkah, we went till 5 a.m. And Sam, of course, was playing uh, the keyboards and there was dancing. And it was really, it was very special. We were, somehow I, I don't know, somehow I got it into my head that there's a, there's a block of blessings that the Kohen Gadol would read after he left the Beis Hamikdash, after I'm sorry, after he would leave the Holy of Holies, and it says it should be a year of prosperity, and a year where no woman miscarries, and a year where you know there's commerce, and it's it goes through the Aleph base, it's one after the other, and we were saying it all night, we were, we were saying it over and over again, and after each one, everyone was saying Amen, 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 and we we kept on doing it. You know, we were doing other things too, but it was, it was something special. So what's this idea of the decree being delivered, right? Because it seems, um, it seems like redundant to the process. And by the way, I just want to tell you something, which is that if you look in Megillus Esther, which is the story of Purim, you'll see that quite a bit um, is put into this idea of the decree being delivered. There's a lot of the story concerns that. And, and by the way, there's a wonderful book. Um, I know we're not close to Purim right now, but just make a mental note or get it now. It's called The Queen You Thought You Knew. And it's very, very special. Very, very, very special. Very deep. And he, he advances, the rabbi uh, Foreman... Um, advances a number of different arguments, but one, one of the most interesting ones is that um, he says that, that, that Queen Esther, he points out that Queen Esther throws this second feast, the second wine party, and it's there that she finally reveals that she's Jewish and finally asks Ahasuerus directly to annul the decree and um, points out Haman and says, he's the one who's trying to kill me, your favorite wife, and the queen, and all of her people. And then Ahasuerus, of course, says that Haman should be hanged and or hung, and all that his property should be transferred over to Mordecai. And it seems like that's the climax and the happy ending to the story. And yet if you look, there's several more chapters to the book of Esther. <laughs> So he raises that question, and it's an excellent question, because, you know, how long of a denouement do you need? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on, and it seems very, very technical after that. So what is all of that? And you know what all of that has to do with? 
the fact that Ahasuerus, if you look at his words carefully, and he goes through his words very carefully, he says that Ahasuerus actually hemmed and hawed. He, he, yeah, he threw Haman under the bus. He did do that. And he took away his property. But he also said, I've kind of delivered the decree already. <laughs> so it actually, you know, I got the chills as I say it. He actually was very, very withholding at that moment, which is treated as the victorious climax to Esther and Mordechai's efforts. Not only was he withholding, but the whole point was that the Jewish people shouldn't be exterminated. Not that just this figurehead should be knocked off, but that the decree should be uprooted. And he, at the end of that process, goes, well, about the decree, it's kind of been sent out already. And then they have to figure out how to undo the delivering of the decree. So I'm just telling you all of this, um, just so you should have an extra degree of appreciation for Hoshana Rabbah. You know? So, so, so I understood it in a, in, a, in a way I hadn't thought of it before. Um... And I, I just, I wanted to apply a story that I had heard many years ago from Rabbi Green, from his own life, that, that I heard him tell, about delivering decrees or, or not delivering decrees. He, when he told the story, it wasn't about that at all, but it's also about that, you know? You know, when someone who's a real Talmud Chacham says something, it, 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 it can be applied to many different levels. That's why they say in the Talmud that even the casual conversation of a great scholar, is, is, is rich in Torah. So, so I want to apply his words to this example. So he told the following story, that he w- when he was, I think it was 17 years old, um, he wrote a letter uh, uh, proposing marriage to a girl. And then he went and he mailed the letter in a mailbox out on the sidewalk. And then he came home and he went to sleep and he couldn't go to sleep. And the reason why he couldn't go to sleep was because he realized that he had made a mistake and that he was too young and that this was not the right thing at this time in his life. And he didn't, he didn't know what to do because, you know, when you mail a letter, you can't go fishing in a mailbox. That's, that's a federal crime. That's a felony. You can't do that. So what he did was he went, like, if I remember correctly, like in the middle of the night, and he camped out by the mailbox, waiting for the mailman to come. And the mailman came, and he was an older man, and he, he appealed to him. And he said to him, you know, this is what I did. This is my life. This is where I'm at. I need the letter back. And the mailman gave him the letter back. And so, so I think this is Hoshana Rabbah, you know? It's the idea that Maybe the decree does exist, but you can still, there's still this opportunity to stop the decree from being enacted. And this is, if you look, this is what they were so successful in doing in, in the story of Purim, that once the decree had already been delivered even, that's, a, that's actually an extra step. This is why, actually, it's, it's amazing me right now, as I said, because I didn't realize it. The decree had already been delivered. This is, shows you how great Purim is, right? 
that they were able to undo a decree that was actually already delivered. Right? Maybe this is a level in understanding what the Ari means when he says that 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 Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, by the way, in the Gemara, is referred to as Yom Kippurim. That's how it's called. And so K is a prefix in Hebrew which means like. So Yom Kippurim actually, if you read it literally, actually means a day that is like Purim. Or, to add the Ari's reading, a day that is only like Purim, meaning Purim is even greater than Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippurim is just a day that's like Purim. So imagine what Purim is. That, that, that's how he reads it. So we, we see a support for this concept. I mean, that, that works on you know, many, many extra levels. But because here you see that on Purim, the decree was already delivered and they were able to undo the decree that had been delivered. So that's, that's an amazing thing. So now let's talk about, now with all this in mind, let's go back to the more here and now point. What does it mean to undo a decree? What does it mean to rip up a decree? Okay, because we see that even after a decree is delivered, it can be undone. So how does, how does that work exactly? Okay. So, um, so I'd like to try to explain it in the following way. You see, like I said, just to, just to review the, the concept, when we talk about ripping up decrees, or when we talk about um, annulling these divine verdicts, I don't think that there's a piece of paper in, in heaven that gets ripped up. I think we're, we're talking about uh, matters of energy, matters of uh, much more esoteric realms where just sheets of paper don't exist as they do here. So what does it mean to rip up a, de- a decree, especially a negative decree? So in order to understand that, um, we have to understand something about angels. Um, the first thing we have to know is that God is one. There, there is no power other than God. We believe that there are angels, but these angels are not independent entities and they don't have free choice. They just do the will of God. God created them, their creations, and they just do the will of God. So the way I heard Gedalia Fleer put it one time, he said, how does a unity interact with a multiplicity? Because God is one, God is a complete unity. So how does the unity interact with a multiplicity? Multiplicity means many. How does the one act with many? Right? So... So he explained that this is where the concept of angels comes in because angels are basically extensions of God's will. They're the enactment of God's will. So so sometimes, especially people who are studying the more mystical realms and things like that, they start to get into angels. Just take my advice. Just avoid the subject altogether because it's really, it's just a trap. Because the angels are just servants of God. Go to the boss. And, and learning about the angels and trying to 
access them in some way is like a hair's breadth away from Avodah from idol worship. And there have been times in Jewish history where people have gotten very into the study of angels and things like that, and even like written their names down on mezuzah scrolls and things like this. And the rabbis just said, enough, just stop, just don't do it. It just, it, 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 it's not helpful. And, and the problem is, is sometimes they say, um, we have a concept, which is sometimes a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Now, what does that mean, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing? Let me explain to you. Because you have to know what the main subject is, and then you have to know what the details are. And the problem is, is that sometimes someone who has a little knowledge is they've learned some very powerful and evocative details. And then what happens is, in terms of one's learning process, is they then see the whole through the details. And then you, at that point, have corrupted your entire frame of reference. You see, it's, it's, this, is why, this is why the fundamentals of Judaism, the fundamentals of reality, are the most important things. You say, well, the fundamentals, a, a child is learning the fundamentals. So how can I, at my, you know, in my exalted status, be learning the fundamentals? Because the fundamentals never stop being the fundamentals. And if, you know, if you then, you know, you know have you ever heard this phrase, he's too smart for his own good? You know what that means? He's too smart for his own good. He's forgotten the fundamentals and is now seeing it through these little crafty little details. But that's corruption. We don't want that. So one has to know that God is one and that the only power in the entire universe is God and whatever God wants happens and that's it. Okay. Now, with that in mind, we can return to a discussion of angels. <laughs> so, so angels are just something that flows from God's will, how he enacts something, right? You know, this guy is about to get hit by a car. God says, I don't want him to get hit by a car. So he sends, you know, whatever. He makes the guy trip and fall before he can get hit by the car. Okay, so that's just the an enactment of God's will, right? Okay. And again, they don't have free choice. Okay. Now, another thing that you have to know about angels is that they have only one job. They have one mission and that's it. They're, they're you know, uh, it's, it's, in that example, if the angel was created to to make the person, uh, to block the person from being hit by the car, once he did that, that angel disappears. Okay? So that's, 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 a, that's an important foundation. Okay? Now, with that in mind, we can put all these things together. Which is, when a decree is made, that means that basically, an angel has been assigned to enact something in someone's life. Okay. Now, what is the process of tshuva? 
Tshuva means that I'm really becoming more in tune with my potential, more in tune with what God's will for me is, and, and me at my best. Okay? So now, when I do tshuva, what happens is, is that I become another person. And so the person that was there a moment ago is no longer there anymore. Because I've become a different person. Okay? Now that means, and that means that, therefore, if there was a decree, right, on me, say, if I've become another person right now, then that angel no longer has a job. It doesn't have a mission anymore because he was supposed to enact something for someone who no longer exists. So I believe what that means is that that is what it means that a decree is ripped up in heaven. That it isn't a piece of paper, obviously, floating up in the sky. But that energy, that, 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 that angel which was assigned a particular task, no longer has that task anymore. Because that assignment no, no longer exists anymore. Because that person who it was assigned to no longer exists anymore. So, so this is... This is what the Jewish people did at the time of Purim as well. Because when they all fasted, we created, we, we became someone else. We became the people that the decree was not on anymore. So, so someone was telling me, and I tried to find the, 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 the source before I, I came here, but I, I didn't have enough time to, to locate it, but he's a reliable guy. And um, he told me the following. He said that he had just read that um, uh, wolves, uh, the animal, had been reintroduced into a park just recently. I think it was something like a national park, like Yellowstone or something like this. I don't know if it was Yellowstone, but anyway. And that because of that, everything changed. For instance, the deer, the deer get eaten by wolves. So the deer, there were no wolves. So the deer had become, you know, kind of bold and had populated certain areas where the deer don't normally populate. And now that there were wolves, the deer had to go to other places within this landscape. And now as a result, there was all sorts of insect life and, and, and all sorts of birds and things like that. And then eagles started to come back I don't remember the exact logic and, and the connection between all these things, but this is what he said. Eagles then came back to the park, and then beavers came back because someone was killing the beavers and they weren't killing the beavers anymore. And now that the beavers were damming up the rivers, all the rivers changed. All because wolves had been reintroduced, and that was a, a critical step in the whole ecosystem that had been removed. Now that it was back, there was like, this harmony was sort of res restored. And, and it's, it's such a lesson, because, I mean, that's, you can learn a zillion things from that. But one thing that comes to mind to say is, 
that wolves are predators. And, you know, our sort of very Western liberal consciousness tells us that, oh, if you can get rid of all the predators, then, then we are in Shangri-La, right? Then that's utopian. And you see that there's a role, and I'm, uh, I'm going to speak more metaphorically right now, but that there's a role for going out there and pouncing, you know, attacking a problem I'm talking about right now. I'm not talking about attacking each other. I'm talking about, spiritually speaking, that there is a time where you have to be like a wolf. And if you look in the brachas that Yaakov Avinu gives, he blesses Benjamin. And Benjamin, by the way, is, is one of the people that the Gomorrah says the only reason why he died was because Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge. There's certain people, a small group of people, who never would have died. And the only reason why they died is because death had entered into the world. And Binyamin is one of these people. What blessing does Binyamin get from Yaakov Avinu? He compares him to a wolf. You would think, oh, Binyamin has never did anything wrong in his whole life. Right? Like, why? Like, Like, he would for sure be a deer or a dove or a butterfly, right? No, you're a wolf. So, so, you know, this idea of going after a problem and just like zeroing in and saying, you know, I'm not going to be stopped. I'm going and I'm going to solve this. That level of intense determination is very wolf-like and is very beneficial when one, you know, balances it in a, in a complete ecosystem of proper vinos, proper, you know, um, personality traits. So, so now let's get uh, a little bit more to the nitty-gritty in terms of um, our year, the year ahead. So, so I think that one of the first challenges is we have to, hopefully we've done it by now, but but I think because it's so hard to do and people don't even know that they're supposed to do this necessarily, that probably many of us haven't done this yet. And I know I'm just at the very initial steps of it myself, but I'm in tune with it enough that I can at least try to share an approach with you. And that's how do we implement our resolves? How do we actually do it, right? And so one of the things that we have to be uh, on guard guard for is, um, remember, the Yetzirah, the negative inclination, that which seeks to undo us and to kill us, actually, um, comes in many guises, many forms. The typical form that we associate with it is the devil, right? That it's tempting us, go there, say that, do this, don't do that, right? That's the tempter that we, that we associate the Yetzirah with. But sometimes the Yetzirah comes dressed as a rabbi, so to speak, meaning that he'll come garbed in a way telling us to do things that we're not ready to do yet. And the idea is, from the logic of the Yetzirah, 
it's a very good um, it's a very good deal for him because he figures, oh, I'll raise you up to this level more than you have a foundation for. You won't be able to stay up here for long because you have no foundation. And then you'll become depressed, you'll fall, and you'll throw the whole thing away. So it's a very good deal for the Yetzirah. He gets you to be holy for 10 minutes, for a week, for a month, and then he gets you to throw the entire thing away. And then even worse, now you have a terrible association with, 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 all the, with the meaning of life. How do you feel about the meaning of life? I hate it. What? You actually, well, that's a pretty good trick, isn't it? The Yetzirah can get you to hate the meaning of life. Then it's done its job. It's like game over, you know. Who's next? <laughs> Step right up. You know, so, so one of the ways that the Yetzirah works at this time in the year is that it, for those of us who are, you know, very growth-oriented and we're serious and we're trying to be better, we're, we're trying to take our soul and, and, and do the most with it, is it will say, okay, you resolved these five things, so... So do these five things right now. <laughs> do these five things right now. I'm on your side. I'm rooting for you. <laughs> go, 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 go. Do, 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 do. And then you go, how am I going to get to the gym every single day and eat better and learn more Torah and spend more time with my parents and... On and on and on and on. Clean out the garage and 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 learn how to code. You know, it's like right. But it's coming from quote unquote the best place. It's coming from the best place. And weren't you saying these? Are, am I not quoting you in your own tefillah, your own prayers on Yom Kippur? Am I not just quoting you? So surely we're on the same page. So we have to be very careful about this. We have to be like really real. Have to pick one thing. Pick one thing. And then pick one thing, one small piece of that one thing. And then figure out, and this is the key step, when in your day tomorrow you're going to do it. All right? Because making a Seder, a schedule... That's where it all lives or dies. You know, to tell you how important a schedule is, the Gomorrah in, in Shabbos lists a certain number of questions that every one of us is going to be asked at the end of our lives when we stand before the heavenly court. And one of the questions that we're going to be asked is, did you make a set time, a fixed time for Torah study? Okay. So whatever that is, hopefully we're doing it every day, but certainly once a week. How many questions are asked? Um, they list about five questions. The first question that they list is, um, did you do uh, business honestly? With emuna it says. Be'emunah, but it, the simple translation is honestly. Um, uh, did you try to have a family? Not, not necessarily did you succeed, but did you at least try? Yeah. Um, did you make a fixed time for Torah study? That's another question. A question that isn't on that list in Shabbos, but I heard Reb Shlomo say is, um, 
one of the first questions that a person's asked is, where are your children? So, like, you know, that, that's another question. So, but you see from this idea of scheduling that it's of critical importance. And, you know, uh, I heard from one of my teachers that all of life is making good habits. And then I'll just add a PS, which is then, then you have to make sure that your habits aren't um, done by r- rote. Meaning to say that you're not just kind of, that you've lost touch with what you're doing, you're just going through the motions. So the idea is to actually schedule things so that they're actually scheduled, you're actually doing them, but that you're experiencing them in a new, real, uh, vibrant way. And you're not just, uh, right? So that in itself is a big challenge. But again, just to review this point, pick one thing that you want to start with. doesn't mean you're not going to do the other things. But pick one thing that you want to start with, then break that down and take a small aspect of that thing, of that one thing, and then ask yourself when in the day you're going to do it and make, make that part of your schedule. Because it's only when, it, when those two things intersect, intention and an appointment, that it becomes real. Because if you say, okay, I did it today. Okay, great, I'm doing it. But if you've got, like imagine like a ladder that's missing like the majority of rungs. Okay, so you got the, your foot on the ladder, so mazel tov. But the point is to climb the ladder, not just to, you know, and if there are no rungs there, so the rungs are the scheduling. You need the scheduling, and then you can continue to make progress. Okay, I don't want to overstate that point, but I don't think you can overstate that point, honestly. Um, so, so that's number one. Then the, the next thing that I want to say on just a very practical level is um, something I, I shared this uh, at the Happy Minion uh, by Ne'ila of, um, of, of Yom Kippur. Ne'ila, as I'm sure you know, is the, the culmination of, of Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, and the whole process really starting in Elul. It all kind of boils down to Ne'ila. And Ne'ila is actually very interesting on a number of different levels. i just share one thing, which is it means the closing of the gates and, you know, on a sort of, in a, uh, the, the simple way to understand it is just that this period of time is now closing. The gates are closing, right? But there are deeper ways to understand what that means. It's sort of like God is locking you in. That's what Reb Shlomo would say. You know, he's locking you in. So that's, that's much more special, right? And... Um, Every single day, the, the most, the, the, you know, the, the, in terms of just the structure of the, uh, the Jewish prayer service, the, the, the culmination, the height of it is what's called the Shemona Esrei, the, the silent prayer. And the most silent prayers that you ever say is four, right? The nighttime one, Mariv, daytime, Shachris, then uh, on, 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 on a holiday or Shabbos, you say Musaf. That's a third one. Then you say Mincha. That's a fourth one. And then the next one is Mariv. So that's already the next day. 
So in other words, the, 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 the most Shmona Esrei's you'll ever say in a day is four. Except for Yom Kippur, where you say five, and Ne'ilah is the fifth. And the reason why that's so meaningful is because there are five levels to the soul. There's the Nefesh, the Ruach, the Neshama, the Chaya, and the Yechida. And the Yechida, which has the word Echad in it, Yachid, it means unity, total unity. That's the highest aspect of your soul, which is, you know, just, you know, like um, the beautiful um, imagery that, that, that is explained because our soul is a piece of God, right? And, you know, so, so they give the, 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 the uh, visual of there's the ocean, which, so to speak, Kaviyocho is like Hashem, and then there's a wave coming off the ocean, which is like your soul, right? It's, it's, it's like an extension of godliness, right? That's the wave coming off the ocean, right? So, so that's like the yachida. That's like the highest aspect where, where your individual soul merges with the, with the oneness of God. So that's the fifth level of the soul, and that correlates with ni'ilah, which is the fifth shmona esrei. The only day of the year that has five. Okay. So, so at this point, right before we go back into the year and sort of like kind of have to deal with all the stuff that, you know, remember, remember how the whole sin of the spies is explained. You know, there are people who say, because there are the, the people who went out to, to look at the land of Israel while we were still in the desert, we were heading with, you know, Moshe, we've left Egypt, we're heading into Egypt, and they're supposed to look at the land of Israel and come back and give a report to, to the rest of the Jewish people, and they, they terrified them. And, and then the Jewish people didn't want to go into the land, and then because of that, there was a decree of 40 years of wandering, and that whole generation had to die out before the next generation went in. So, so there are people who want to defend the spies and say they were very great people and they had very high intentions. So what is the classic defense of the spies? It's that they were afraid that they went, if, they, if we would go into the land, that because we would have to deal with commerce and with farming and agriculture and all of the business type of things, that we would cease to live this supernatural connection that we had with God in the desert where bread was falling from heaven and where the water was provided for us and where we could just like totally contemplate on the greatness of God amidst his Ananiya covered the clouds of glory, all this stuff. They were like, why would we ever want to leave that? We don't want to leave that, you know? So, so right now, these holidays are a little bit like, you know, it's sort of like been just, oh, wow, it's another huge meal falling down. You know, it's like, you know, because you have to cook it beforehand for the most part. It's like, well, all the shopping is done. It's like, well, just another meal. And then I get to go to shul again and I get to be with friends and this and that. You know, it's sort of like now we're heading into the year and it's sort of like, uh oh, you know, I'm going to get involved in all the details of life and I'm going to forget. Okay. Now, the whole idea of Judaism, of Torah, of our mission in this world is to take all of the details of life and to infuse them with spirituality and, and, and to raise 
That's the whole idea. We don't want to run from our daily responsibilities. Eating, drinking, business, all these things, we want to infuse them with spirituality and with light and to lift them up. That's what we want. But it's easy to forget because it's so overwhelming that we forget. So with that in mind, this is what I shared with the with the happy minion right before um, Ni'ila, right before we started Ni'ila, and, uh, or one of the things, anyway. And there are, um, there are something called the six remembrances. And um, if you look in a, in a, in a prayer book, it's, it's like one of the addendums to the daily prayers. Like, so all the way after the prayers are over, they, they've got some addendums, and the six remembrances are one of them, Okay. And these six things, they're, they're events from the Torah that we're supposed to remember every single day, okay? And one of them, the first is that God took us out of Egypt. So I do this, and I kind of rattle them off. I know the six. I can just tell you, ba 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 here are the six. And then that's what it is. And I've been doing that for years. And then just recently, like, Actually, before Yom Kippur, I just kind of looked at it again inside the actual prayer book just to read it more closely. And I realized that I've been saying it wrong for years. And it doesn't say, remember that God took you out of Egypt. It doesn't say that. It says, remember the day God took you out of Egypt. See, this is a completely different idea. A completely different idea. Remember the day that God took you out of Egypt. See, you know what that is? That means clarity. That means don't lose touch with your clarity and your resolve to change. That's huge. That's huge. And this is our only hope, basically, is to be in touch with the person that we were just a few weeks ago, just a few days ago, maybe just yesterday. So, so Egypt represents all the things that we want to leave behind. And if you remember the day that God took you out of Egypt, that's very, very important. Um, the third one that we're supposed to remember is remember, I thought it was remember how Amalek attacked you in the desert. And again, it doesn't say that. It says, remember how Amalek attacked you as you were leaving Egypt. <laughs> In other words, Amalek represents all the forces of negativity. And the point is, is that you have to remember that now negativity is going to come and try to uproot your memory of your resolve and your clarity of wanting to leave Egypt. And that's what we have to be on guard against. So there's a positive thing and a negative thing. The positive thing is actually to think of one thing that you want to do, take a very small part of that as a beginning. Remember, a small part of one thing. Ask yourself, when am I going to do it during the day? On a daily basis, or maybe it's a weekly basis, or whatever it is. But when am I going to do it? Schedule it. That's the more active thing. Then the more, the other side of it is don't forget that this is actually what you want to do. 
and what you've resolved to do and what you need to do. 